What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Ellen Bruni, VP of Product Management at AutoStore, a warehouse automation system for online grocery and e-commerce fulfillment for brands like Best Buy, Puma, HEB, and Giant. In this episode, we'll discuss the trade-offs between manual and automated grocery fulfillment, how automation can deliver groceries faster and more accurately, and how it might transform the physical shopping experience of the future. This podcast is brought to you by Hungry, a media and research platform dedicated to the intersection of food and technology. For more information, please visit Hungry.tv, that's Hungry with no U, and click subscribe to join the weekly newsletter. All right, Ellen, it's uh, awesome to have you here. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. I'd love for you to just start and share your background with the audience uh, from you know, supply chain at Walmart to Honeywell, and then now Auto Store. Yeah, so um, unique kind of weird background. I'll go a little bit before uh, Walmart, which will give you a little bit of perspective as to why my weird brain works the way that it does. <laughs> so I'm actually a PhD chemical engineer in uh, fermentation. So lots of stuff on the food side there. Uh, had my own startup for a bit and was a faculty member at the university. And so I worked quite a bit there on how do you, how do you commercialize new technology? I actually made the transition to Walmart because they were looking at brand new tech. So Walmart has an emerging technologies team who's responsible for looking at cool new stuff. So I'm trying to think of some of the ones like we can probably talk about some of the ones that are public at this point, but moved over to Walmart to actually help Walmart better understand how do you work with brand new tech that's not quite necessarily ready for the world's largest employer. Mm. So that was kind of how I came over to Walmart to help support uh, emerging tech and working with startups that are not quite proven at the massive scales of Walmart yet. So was at Walmart uh, a little over two years, helping support emerging tech for the entire U.S. supply chain, and then had a short stint at Honeywell and then went over to AutoStore. So actually, and then joined the AutoStore team, actually in the sales team, uh, was leading our global accounts and trying to understand how do you communicate the story of what AutoStore can do in order to help some of the world's largest companies. Um, and then switched over to com- coming back to my engineers and moved over to lead the product management organization early uh, at the beginning of this year. Wow, amazing. Um, and th- when you look at like what you did at Walmart, how much of that was delivery related when it comes to their acquisition? I guess, I don't know if it happened while you were there, but of Alert Innovation uh, which is doing the micro fulfillment and but what what sort of projects I guess if you could could you share that they are responsible for? Yeah, so actually at the time that I was at Walmart, those were two separate teams, and so there was a team that was predominantly what they would call store innovation, and they were the one predominantly working on the micro fulfillment. They had the pickup towers that were inside the Walmart stores where people could go in store for like click and collect. And they were the ones supporting the alert innovation team. My team was inside um, supply chain. And at the time, supply chain only did store fulfillment. 
So I was working on all of the projects to automate the warehouses that were replenishing the stores. So the imports network that's bringing in goods from overseas. I spent a lot of time working in the grocery network, sending groceries to the stores, um, as well as then the general merchandise. And then towards my later time at Walmart, the e-com side as well. But the e-com was when Walmart acquired Jet.com. So it was the online non-grocery items. I think in the last two years, Walmart has um, been working on their omni-channel strategy. So Jet.com became Walmart.com, which then kind of blended in with their current MFC strategy. So it's all mushed up together now. But that was that was in process while I was there. So th- it's a very long way to say I didn't work on any of the grocery pickup <laughs> okay. and delivery. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, yes, very familiar with Jet.com. Uh, Mark Laurie, who's now running Wonder, which is a hungry favorite topic. So yeah, we'd love to go. Let's go now to Auto Store. Uh, give us a sense of, for people who don't know what your business is today, some of the key verticals that you play in within e-com and maybe some of the top uh, retailers that you're working with. Yeah, so AutoStore is specifically about looking for dense cube storage. And so how do we automate and accelerate the process of fulfillment while optimizing the space that people have available to them? So we work with all sorts of different uh, market verticals. So from grocery applications and MFCs to very large e-commerce fulfillment centers, uh, groups that are shipping to stores as well as to customers. So some groups are using our systems for omni-channel fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And then 3PLs as well. And there was a big press release last week, I believe, uh, about our partnership with DHL. So DHL is mm-hmm. using a lot of our systems to try to optimize their supply chain as well as they're serving their customers in their uh, e-commerce business. And we think about fulfillment, um, you are an automated solution, meaning it's ro- robotics versus, you know, just, I guess, help us understand the legacy systems that you're replacing and like why, maybe just a little, we'll dive into this, but why is auto store better? Yeah. So if you want to think about the true legacy systems, when I started working in e-commerce, a lot of the systems at that point were just miles and miles of shelving. So shelves with lots of stuff on them and people were walking marathons every day trying to get the fulfillment orders pulled together. That's extremely taxing on the person who's having to walk that far every day. Uh, you're increasing your number of errors because you're uh, you're relying on the hopes that whoever is walking down goes to the right spot on the right shelf to pick the right item. Um, You also have lots of errors in and around things get lost. Uh, Stuff gets broken. It either falls off the shelves, it rolls under a rack. And so it's a really inefficient process that quickly bottlenecks a company's ability to provide things that we expect now, which is next day shipping or same day shipping, depending on the uh, metropolitan that you're in. So as we all kind of remember when e-com kicked off, if it was three to five business days, we all thought that was normal. Now, if it was three to five business days, I probably wouldn't buy it. So when you're looking at AutoStore, they're looking at how do you take that space and make it very efficient? And how do you enable the most success 
for your picker. So we're going to bring you the item that you're supposed to pick and it's going to deliver it right in front of you. So you're now not walking a marathon every single day to hopefully find the right item. You're having it delivered to you so that you can work in an ergonomic position and also increase the number of picks, successful picks that you get every uh, cycle. Right. So it's a, it's a matrix like system for those who haven't seen it. Um, I've actually had the pleasure of checking it out at, um, some of the conferences like grocery shop and shop talk, but you know, essentially, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong with my, uh, explanation here for, for people who are trying to visualize this, you have these, um, you know, robots that essentially dive deep into these, into these, uh, matrices and then pull out totes where groceries or ambient goods, you know, regular e-commerce stuff that you'd buy on Amazon or any other e-commerce site, you know, laptops, chargers, et cetera, or maybe um, we can get into the grocery stuff, what sorts of things are, are stored in there, but then essentially bring that tote from where, wherever it is in this 3D matrix up to the top and then into to a picker that would normally have to walk down those aisles, as you explained. And essentially that picker is a human. They reach into this tote, take out the or the item in with for, for that order for that e-commerce order and scan it and put it into a bag. And then the next tote comes in out of that matrix right shortly after and gives them the second item. And they're able to be a lot more efficient because they're not having to go hunt down items in a big warehouse. Or maybe if we're even going to compare Instacart, which we will later, they're not mm -hmm. a grocery shopper that's actually like functioning like a customer and picking things off of a retail store shelf. Is that a decent enough explanation? Yeah, no, I love hearing how other people describe <laughs> our system and a matrix is great. It's, it's kind of like a giant Rubik's cube matrix with robots right. driving on top, mm -hmm. which allows the storage to be really, really dense and really efficient for what they're trying to accomplish. Right. And, and the cool thing about what you guys are doing, because I think people are familiar with Ocado, which is a competitor, but they are doing, you know, massive warehouses in the, I guess, hundreds of thousands of square foot footage. But you guys are modular in the sense that you can pretty much do it in a large deployment or a small deployment. Uh, you can add as many totes uh, to build your matrix vertically or horizontally or both. Correct. Yeah, so we do have a height limit at the moment. It's 16 bins tall, is as tall as the system will go uh, today. But it's almost infinite in terms of the other two coordinate planes. We're not quite mm -hmm. too infinite yet, uh, but we're, <laughs> we're working on, on that one. We, I was teasing my R&D team about when we were going to have to start account, accounting for the curvature of the earth for the size of the grids. <laughs> I don't know that we're there yet, but maybe one day. Interesting. So um, obviously interesting to hear. So yeah, if you could share um, some of those, nece not necessarily grocery, but just uh, outside of DHL, any other large customers like Apple, et cetera, that you do fulfillment for. I'm trying to think of ones that I that are public that I can mm -hmm. share outside of DHL mm -hmm. that the broader audience will know. Mm -hmm. My problem is, is I don't know off the top of my head which ones are public or not. 
mm-hmm. but we've got several retailers. We got some several big retailers in and around sporting goods um, in terms of also sneakers. Uh, so that's another really big one that led to some development. Actually, I think I can mention Puma is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. So we actually designed one of our bins is taller so that the sneaker boxes will fit in like mm. vertically. You did it just for them. Uh, yeah, this was this was years <laughs> ago, but they're the they're the impetus for the reason we have mm. the 440 bin. So now lots of people use it for different reasons, but we have three yeah. bin heights. Got it. Cool. OK, so, yeah, love to talk about grocery specifically. Um, you know, how big is this? Uh of a use case for auto store um, as far as the number of deployments that you have in your, in your worldwide kind of footprint. And then let's, after we talk about that, let's get into the difference of how you, the difference, different kind of scenarios where you can deploy them anywhere as small as a micro fulfillment center, MFC to kind of dedicated e-com fulfillment centers that are doing, you know, omni-channel. Yeah. So in terms of grocery, I think it's one of the growing markets. If you want to look across globally, we've got pretty good market penetration in terms of like how how frequently people will use an auto store. I think one of the biggest challenges is that we face is the same thing the industry as a whole is facing is the micro fulfillment market is challenging. Groceries, the margin on your per item for groceries is fairly small, which just makes the business case challenging. So all of us across the industry are having to compete with the alternative of picking off of a shelf off of a shelf. So like you said, you've got you know, all of these various different groups that are either doing MFCs themselves or you're doing it as like a deliverer or something else that uh, an in-store shopper is going to go pick from you. Um, so there, there's a balance there. But at this point with the with the demand from the customers in order to be able to shorten that level of service of time. Like an auto store, specifically just any automation, is becoming absolutely mandatory. So I think we're start we're maintaining with the market, but I think it's something that's going to have to continue to grow. So your really large retailers in the grocery space are all kind of picking, and where some of we're now starting to see more traction amongst your smaller grocery stores that are a little bit more regional or hyper localized, as opposed to your big like uh, mega grocery stores. Got it. So the MFCs are attached to the store. They're in the back storeroom area where you would be maybe breaking down pallets um, as like a kind of... Sometimes. There's kind of two different ways to do it. And it partially depends on do you have your physical inventory, like uh, real estate in an area. So if you look at like a Walmart, there are Walmarts all over the United States. Um, This is a public stat. There is, I think, something like 98% of the U.S. population lives within 10 miles of a Walmart. So Walmart's going to use the buildings that they have. There's there's no reason not to. Where if you look at someone, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other um, groups. Oh, and I'm drawing a blank on who I'm thinking of right now. (laughs) Uh, But some of these online only ones, they don't necessarily have the physical infrastructure in place. So they may be looking at something different. Hmm? Like a Fresh Direct in the US or a Good Eggs or some of these vertically integrated ones. 
Exactly. Like a Fresh Direct, a Blue Apron, a uh, which they're they're doing their kits. Um, but exactly. Um, and so they're instead having to look at where do you go put your stuff? And you, at the end of the day, with grocery and with MFCs, the most expensive component of that whole omni-channel is the last mile of delivery. So you want to get your stuff as close to the people who are buying it as possible. You want to try to ensure if that the SKUs that those people want to buy, so the things they want to buy are very close. So I need to have my Turkish yogurt really close to my house where maybe you need they need to position something differently close to your house. And you're going to try to optimize that space because it's probably going to be an urban environment. Mm-hmm. And so this is where auto store is kind of interesting because it can be manipulated to fit into brownfield sites that are weirdly shaped. So you're beginning to look at more retailers who are leveraging, we call them brownfields, but like defunct uh, (laughs) real estate or commercial spaces. Uh, You know, I was talking to this to a coworker the other day. What are some of the opportunities in our urban environments is now more and more people are working from home to begin to leverage office space in order to be able to serve this micro fulfillment need. So while I think when MFCs were this cool new thing circa 2019, absolutely. It was a thing attached to the back of a store. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily true anymore. It still Mm. could be attached to a store. That's how your supply chain is already running to get like a Mm -hmm. pallet of tomatoes but if you're doing something else, like it may make more sense to leverage much smaller spaces inside urban environments and set up your supply chain mm-hmm. differently. Got it. So yeah, under underutilized uh, commercial real estate uh, where you can basically fulfill multiple stores worth of demand. I mean, when I've seen this work well, and it's the same thing I think that I've seen with ghost kitchens, I think applies here. So with ghost kitchens, for example, I, re- I write about QSRs that basically like a Starbucks turns off delivery demand from its, let's say 20 uh, stores within a zip code and basically routes any delivery order to a cloud kitchen facility within that radius so that you can offload a lot of that delivery demand to a single fulfillment source. Similarly here, what you would be doing is let's just say you're working with giant Eagle, which I, I think is a, um, this is a public, publicly known customer of yours. You basically turn off delivery for, from a bunch of their stores and fulfill it from a centralized place where they can access customers within a particular city like Philadelphia. Yes, it, they're ghost grocery stores, to use your ghost kitchen reference. <laughs> exactly. And then instead, now we've seen companies like Instacart actually test this with retailers like Mariano's, which is owned by Kroger, where they have human labor going in and picking off the shelf like we were describing earlier. But the key Mm -hmm. difference here with yours is that yours doesn't rely on labor. It's uh, there's still somebody picking, you know, scanning the order items, but there's not as many people that you need to hire. You're investing in the CapEx of of that machine that will be amortized over the life cycle of that system. Well, and there's another aspect to the picking from a from a from a rack. So if you think about it and it, it hits even harder if the person 
picking from the rack and the people replenishing the rack are the same store, you have an extra touch. So uh, Walmart learned this kind of early and you would send pickers into the stores to pick from the shelves uh, to fulfill online orders. You would deplete all of the stock off of the shelf, which right. then meant you need to continue to pay somebody else to then replenish the shelf all the while you're making your in-store customers mad because they've come behind in, in like a store shopper who's gone and taken all of the bottles of ketchup all off of the shelf. <laughs> and so you've increased, you've doubled your labor to handle items on the shelf and ticked off your in-store customers at the same time. So it makes more sense <laughs> to try to get that off of the store floor. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I want to dive into more of those second order effects. Um, but it's just so people understand it's essentially, it can be used for just customers or it can be used just internally to, to pick things that get delivered to other stores internally from a B2B perspective, from a internal B2B perspective or both. Yeah. You can do it off of the exact same grid. And so I've seen systems, I believe this is how Pumas is set up that they're filling online e-commerce orders off of one side of the grid. And so the, the uh, associate picks the, the hoodie out of the bin puts it into a shipping container that's then going to get shipped to the mm -hmm. customer. And there's somebody else on the other side of the grid who's picking 10 hoodies to go into a Gaylord that's going to get shipped to a store to restock a store. Very cool. So you really, you know, like using all parts of the Buffalo, so to speak, and maximizing the, the throughput of your system so that you can get the most out of your labor savings and, um, it's really interesting. And then we think about all the channels that you can power. It's everything from curbside pickup to delivery to ship to home, right? Which is an, another part of e-commerce where, you know, like we were, we're talking about Blue Apron, they ship the refrigerate, refrigerator of goods to you in the box itself, right? They, they put cold packs in there. Like in, any other yeah. channels that I forgot to mention? Trying to think, like, I mean, that's really, and, and maybe I think it's overly simplified, but I always think B2B and B2C. And like, right. then there's all of the different flavors inside of B2B versus B2C. Mm -hmm. But at the end, ultimately, that's really what it is. Right. And then when we talk about grocery, you know, can you do a carton of eggs, potato chips, carrots, lettuce, all the way down to like ice, frozen ice cream? Like what, what, what are the kind of limitations of the system or where are the contours there are, are some customers using still their, you know, like a quick pick aisle to manually add things to order totes, or is it all can a hundred percent of the inventory that's sold online be stored, you know, for online grocery specifically in this auto store system? So for grocery, that's kind of a fun one. So, I would say the overwhelming majority of the items can be stored in the auto store. The other half of the question though is should it? So mm -hmm. I'll first give you the temperature. Obviously anything that is stored at ambient temperature. So like on the store, like normal temp shelves mm -hmm. can absolutely go in an auto store and then in anything chilled can go, we have a separate chilled auto store. Mm -hmm. um, we're working on adding in the frozen capabilities. It's not quite out there out yet, but right now we have chilled. 
Uh, so ice cream still right now has to go in like a separate like freezer case. Separately, though, the other question becomes, should it go in the auto store? So generally what we try to recommend to people is extremely high velocity items probably shouldn't go into the auto store. So bananas is one of those that we generally recommend right. not to. Some people do, but bananas tend to go in every single order. And so it's much easier to actually have bananas stored outside of the auto store because you know almost every order that's going out the door needs a bunch of bananas mm -hmm. added to it. So there's a different way to layer like bananas into a process. So if it's at that level, every order gets one, you probably don't want to put mm -hmm. it in the auto store. The other thing we tend to not recommend putting in an auto store is if only one unit will fit in the bin, because again, it comes to that touches. You've had to take, pay somebody to put that unit in the bin and then take it out. And then now you have an empty bin. So an example, there is like a case of water or like, because the, all that's going to fit in a bin is one case of water. So you're better off having I a see. pallet of water somewhere else and taking it off the pallet. Right. So it's like over, oversized stuff, DSD items. Yep. Yeah, DSD items, super high velocity. Yeah, DSD, oversized, super high velocity. And the only other one that we sometimes see doesn't go in the auto store is if you have, depending on your region's laws, if you have special inventory control required for it. Mm -hmm. So certain like pharmaceutical items, like if you need to confirm something that the age of the individual, you may not want that in the, the, the okay. final all assembled together. And so sometimes that stuff gets pulled out. Alcohol would fit that bill or alcohol seems like it's fair game in there. Alcohol falls into, like, I was going to say alcohol and it depends. So if it's like beer, like, yes, you could probably put it in the auto store. Sometimes they don't put it in there because of the age restrictions High proof alcohol, we also don't recommend putting in the auto store, and that has to do with flammability concerns. Oh, so boy. things that <laughs> would need to be stored in a special manner in a warehouse because they're spray paint, um, things that are like extremely flammable, mm -hmm. you generally don't want to put in the auto store. And it's not that the auto store is going to hurt it, but the fire department has some pretty strict rules across all automation. And mm -hmm. typically those kinds of things have to be stored in a special like flammables area. Got it. Okay. So then I, I want to get into kind of the business case of, I guess what I would classify as OPEX versus CAPEX when it comes to looking at making the switch from, you know, the, the kind of legacy model, the manual pick model that we kind of outlined earlier to an automated one. But first, I think it'd be helpful for people to understand um, what your business model looks like if it varies between, you know, traditional general merchandise from an electronics retailer like a Best Buy to a grocer like an HEB. And then, you know, kind of what you're responsible for, because I think earlier in the pandemic, a lot of grocers were looking for kind of all in one solutions like a website that can do their online fulfillment and the hardware and all the integration. So I'm just curious, like what are the kind of the, um, the contours of what you provide customers and where you kind of refer them to other uh, vendors to give them a complete e-com fulfillment uh, solution? 
So our primary business model is we sell through our partners. So we we work with large material handling integrators like Swisslog, Bastion, Element Logic, right. and Dematic. And they predominantly handle the majority of the installations and it's gonna be CapEx based. And so they're the ones who are providing all of the software to your point. So if someone needs a WMS, they need that inventory system, they need the web shop, that's being predominantly handled by our partners who are also mm-hmm. doing the installation as well as any kind of the commissioning and the ongoing service over time. Mm-hmm. And the employees have to be to, to do the picking um, and packing are all going to be store employees of the brand, the customers themselves, the customers being the, the retailers. Yes, exactly. Obviously, where the three PLs get involved, that's where things get a little bit different. But then that's where that's like DHL's model as DHL mm-hmm. is running like the warehouse on behalf of their end customer. That could be an interesting idea. So, yeah, you were saying something about the smaller customers. Yeah. So the uh, the alternative that we have is much, much smaller retailers that are like very small and we have a product offering called uh, PO and they will sell very small systems direct. And it has a uh, Shopify integration, which allows people to integrate the auto store directly with their Shopify web shop. And how small are we talking? Are we talking about like an air one grocery store in LA or uh, like a 10,000 square foot little store. What, what are we dealing with? Uh, more unlike in the line of both of those. So there's, there's a really cool one actually here in Oslo that is a clothing retailer Mm -hmm. and they have built the dressing rooms out of the auto store. So if you actually go in and you want to try on a a shirt and you want it in blue and you want it in a size large, the auto store will deliver the bin out so that you can get the size that you want to try on. And then if you go in the dressing room, the walls of the dressing room are actually the bins that are in storage. So (laughs) they're making use of like a super tiny space here in the city center. And how many SKUs would that be on the small, on the, on like the lowest end? Oh, on the very, very smallest end. I'd have to guess, I'm trying to think, a couple thousand is all you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And at the very, very smallest in the hundreds, and that would be if you only have one skew per bin, mm-hmm. you'd only probably have a couple hundred skews. But you wouldn't want to do that economically. Yeah, at some point, at some point, it doesn't make sense anymore. Like if you Unless, only have yeah. 20 skews, like you're going to run an Etsy shop and you have 20 <laughs> things like an auto store doesn't yeah. make sense at that point. Right. Like a, a bunch of Rolexes could work because, you know, maybe you have the same skew, but they're all super high value and small. That's what I always said was like, you know, the quick commerce problem. It's like if you're selling, you know, 15 minute, if you're doing 15 minute delivery of low margin bulky skews um or just selling people bananas and milk and eggs and whatever top offs they need this model doesn't work if you're going to sell them rolexes in 15 minutes which everybody needs a rolex in 15 minutes um (laughs) then it's a great model exactly (laughs) and and it's funny we do have a couple customers i can't name names but Mm -hmm. have intentionally bought auto stores actually for the security play more than Mm. anything because if the system is off you can't get into it and so you can kind (laughs) of make actually i think the one i can talk about is the fbi has one literally to store paperwork for and it's in a vault and it stores case files it's amazing 
So I guess let's talk about when it makes sense for a grocery retailer to go from picking manually to considering auto store. What would you say if you want to ensure the success of a particular grocery customer? Where do you think that breaking point is uh, when it comes to weekly volumes? Weekly, it's hard to answer it in terms of volume. Like it's not really just a. It's not really just about volume because it also comes down to like optimization of the space. Because if you have it in a like it's so small you could actually be in a much lower volume that triggers a need for an auto store because you're just absolutely trying to cram 10,000 SKUs into like this tiny closet of a space. Mm -hmm. You also have like inventory control. And so especially in terms of grocery, the other thing I always tend to ask customers about is, you know, what, how are you managing your first in and first out? So like you mentioned milk, milk goes bad. So the auto store can help you as you're inducting things into the system. Now the automation knows when those items went in and when they're going to expire, which makes it a whole lot easier to say, well, I don't want to just give my cut. Like we don't want to do what we all do at the grocery store, which is walk around and look for the eggs. So like the longest expiration date, you want to be able to present it and say, okay, these are the first eggs that went in. They're going to expire in a month. And so I want you to pick these, not the ones that we got yesterday mm-hmm. that have a longer shelf life on them. Mm-hmm. This is why I always go into the store because I want the longer shelf life. Yeah. And if you do online pickup, they're going to absolutely give you the ones that are going to expire first. But do you have any other metrics like maybe sales or at what point do you feel like a manual pick system is going to be bursting at the seams and that it makes sense to start looking at a CapEx investment, especially as capital, the cost of capital is increasing with interest rates. If you're financing these machines, you need to have enough volume where you can justify basically investing in something that's going to give you returns over the uh, a longer time horizon, right? And this is kind of the classic challenge here is do I, you know, work in something that's a little less efficient that is going that I can do uh, an OPEX based model of, you know, hiring labor to do all of this. Um, and then try to put throw software at the problem to make it more efficient, or do I try to, you know, amortize that cost of this capex investment and lower my operating expenses? But I still need to justify making this investment and and servicing the debt on that could be more expensive. So, how do you like go about looking at that right now? Um, and then, like, what kind of problems are are, cus- are are you seeing right now that grocers are coming to you in this kind of post-pandemic, you know, slow growth of online penetration? Yeah, so I, I think you kind of touched on it earlier. So there, there's three main things I look at. Volume is one of them. It is also your level of service. So how quickly do you want to be able to serve the customer that's, like, trying to chase what you're doing and, and what's your margin? Um You know, if someone comes to me and they're only, you know, it's a 40, you have to order your groceries 48 hours in advance. Uh, We're not seeing a ton of volume and it's going to be predominantly bread, milk and eggs. I'm probably going to tell you don't buy an auto store. Like you don't have the volume. You're not having the demand. The calculation for that ROI is just not going to be there. 
But as you're starting to run either, and predominantly with grocery, you don't see as much on margin just simply because for the most part, grocery stores are not carrying Rolexes and high margin SKUs. <laughs> and so it's going to be predominantly a, a factor of both volume and level of service. So if I want to be able to put my grocery order in while I'm on my lunch break and pick it up on my way home from work, all of a sudden you're now in automation territory, kind of regardless of what mm -hmm. your volumes are. Because if you look at just like manual picking right now, they're about 65 units an hour is what somebody can deliver mm -hmm. where we've got plenty of operations in auto store where the whole system is running at 300 units per operator. So you're getting what significant lift on the throughput and also that speed and accuracy that you're getting. Got it. So that's, um, Almost five times faster, basically, than a manual pick. Yeah. So this term, units per hour, is that units picked per hour, right? Mm-hmm. Can you just help people understand what that means and how that translates to orders? So, like, let's just say, for round numbers' sake, the average order has 30 items. Does that mean that you could do 10 orders per hour? Yeah, so generally what I tend to think is one unit is what well, well sometimes called one line. So if you look at your receipt and like how many lines were on the receipt is roughly one unit uh, because you actually can pick more units per hour if you're picking multiples. So if somebody buys see. three apples, like it's, but loosely if you think about 300 units, it's going to be about 300 lines. And so to your point, if the average and so if the average grocery order has like 10 lines, yeah, you're going to get, uh, yeah, you're going to get that many. I'm so tired at this point. It's been a long day and I'm <laughs> failing at math over here. I'm so that's 30 orders an hour. If it's, yeah, if it's 10 order lines, it's 30. An and let's just say each of those order lines has one, you know, one to two quantities of those items, right? You buy, you know, two boxes of the same cereal or, to the same yogurt, or maybe even like maybe you can induct, you can store items next to each other that would be likely to be ordered side by side, like um, so that you would yeah. reduce the number of order retrieval lines. Makes sense. Yeah, because sometimes the bins will have multiple items in it. We have dividers. And so you may only have one item type per bin, but like to your point, it could be side by side and that you have apples on one side and oranges on the other. So, and right. we do think about that as we're trying to help people understand what to put in their bins. And we call that slotting is mm. what are items that sometimes commonly get picked together? And could you put those in mm -hmm. the same bin in order to increase the number of picks per bin presentation? Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So I guess like from my vantage point, you know, I think online grocery penetration before COVID is just was like a single digit percentage. And then now we're at 12%. Um, there was a huge, you know, hype cycle around same day delivery, ultra fast delivery, companies like GoPuff really coming in and trying to do these dark fulfillment centers of, you know, late night munchy snacks and alcohol and all these things. <laughs> and I guess I'm just curious to hear from your vantage point from, you know, the auto store perspective, how have you seen the ebb and flow of the conversation change now to a more normal period 
of what people are actually looking for in a high interest rate environment, what's becoming more important in an, in a little bit more rational time where people aren't all just ordering online and trying to fight for a delivery slot, you know, cause that was definitely the status quo not too long ago. What has the conversation kind of shifted to as far as like solving the customer needs within grocery specifically? Yeah. So I think, think we'll, we'll never go back to normal. Like if this is our new normal and where I'm noticing the biggest shift that's been interesting is you called it outright, you know, during the COVID times, it was deliver everything and deliver it to my door. Now it's more the customer demand. And I'm seeing this from our retailers is how do you serve a customer experience. And if I'm going to order the same box of cereal, um, the crackers, the pantry staples, I just want those dropped off at my door because a box of Cheerios tastes like a box of Cheerios and will for all time. However, I think, and you mentioned this a minute ago, I do like going to the grocery store because I have a strong opinion on like how I want my avocados. Do I want to make guacamole tonight or am I trying to make guacamole this weekend? And right. so how do you begin to build this experience that you can then use your automation and use the space that you have available to store those shelf staples that I don't need to go pick up personally a box of Cheerios, but a leverage this limited space that you have in order to create this really positive customer experience predominantly in and around their produce and in and around meat. Those are going to be the hmm. two areas that the customer generally wants to kind of interact with the food that they're buying. Hmm. So you see that a lot of times. I think Whole Foods was one of the first ones to try to make this like farmer's market feel. But as you go into like your giant eagles, as you go into Walmarts, as you go into ETBs, there's they're changing what that produce and chilled section looks like in order to cater that to that experience. Mm -hmm. And I think we're starting to see where people are having their shelf stables delivered and then picking up their fresh produce and their, and their meats, mm. which kind of actually feel like something that the European communities have been doing for a really long time. Right. Like the small scale super rats, I would call them here. Um, you know, that's a French term for like a, a mini, mini market. Mm -hmm. Um, you basically do all your like perimeter shopping, right? The fresher, more perishable things. You want to do that in person. You want to do the lower margin center, center aisle, uh, center of the store shop, you know, that you could fulfill from an Amazon if you wanted to. That's like a longer shelf life, you know, non-perishables in some cases through something like an auto store system. Exactly. And then that lets you kind of split the store. And it could be very well that uh, we start seeing in the future where customers are enabling click and collect. So like you said, you go and you get your bread, you get your produce, you get your meat, and then you just pick up a cart at the end that has your completed center of store items. So then maybe in the oh, future cool. with these like super ads, they don't even have to dedicate floor space to that. Very interesting to think about. And I, I we'll we'll revisit what this could look like in the future, but I, my my head is definitely spinning. So very cool. I want to dive into kind of the second order effects that you started to to speak about earlier. You know, Instacart shoppers have to deal with things like out of stocks and using their own proprietary AI to make recommendations about replacements. Um, this is something that you know they talk about their algorithm in their first mm -hmm. earnings call. 
and fill rates and and these kinds of things. How does um, a system like AutoStore, where you kind of have 100% insight, 100% kind of certainty around inventory, it seems. I'm sure there's still some gotchas. But, you know, what's coming into that system, what's going out of it, being able to track that, what are some of the other second order effects? Yeah, so, and I think that's a good call. And there are still some gotchas. The The system <laughs> is only as good as your quality processes are that put things into it. But as you're using your WMS system that's been enabled by our partners, they do have real-time data of what's in that system. When was it put in there? When are the expiration dates? How many items do you have left? So you're beginning to see uh, retailers can then work with their partner to begin to do that analysis in order to help with the real-time planning. How many days on hand do you want to keep in your system? How do you adjust for seasonal fluctuations? Because you have all of this data that allows you to do lots of really cool stuff um, from beginning to understand, like maybe certain items predominantly get built, bought on Mondays because everybody's doing Taco Tuesdays on Tuesday. And then they can begin <laughs> to use that data for their own demand planning and their replenishment. Hmm. Very interesting. So when we think about like expiration dates of like, let's just say milk or eggs or something where you want that picker to take the the first thing that came into that system, how do they know what item to take out of that um, bin? Is it because that there's one item in that bin that has that one expiration date or do they have to go and, I mean, this is a very weird question, but like, do they have to go and look through all the items that are in that bin if it, there's multiple of the same skew and figure out which one was the oldest? No, no, no. So the way we do it right now is the everything in the bin is going to be that skew with the same expiration dates. So you're not going to mix expiration dates in the same bin. I see. So you Makes may sense. have like apples, I guess, don't really have uh, apples generally have not an expiration date like like label wise or we'll go back to Cheerios. If you have like 20 <laughs> bins of Cheerios in the system, they can all have different expiration dates, but all of the Cheerios in that bin will have the exact same expiration date. Got it. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. And then when we talk about pros and cons of doing this like MFC model versus a CFC model, you know, I'm sure most people are using it for this kind of faster, closer to the customer MFC kind of deployment uh, in their existing retail or in brownfield real estate. But like, I guess, help us think about the differences between like, you know, an Amazon that's fulfilling it from one of their centralized locations and not from a fresh store versus an auto store customer that's in your neighborhood doing, you know, more of a micro fulfillment. So like a larger warehouse versus a smaller one, a larger warehouse that's further outside your city. Okay. Maybe it's your competitor. Well, but the funny thing is, is I feel like you could use an auto store for either of those applications. So it's not like an right. auto store is yeah, limited to just the, the hyper local fulfillment, because you actually do have grocery, we have grocery customers that are doing both. So depending on their placement, they may be putting things very local and urban because you're in a like in a, a dense metropolitan like a Denver and you want to be there but then you may end up having to in other areas like um, source further out like if you know you're looking at like 
HEB, they may need to be further out away from, depending on the area they're trying to service, it may make mm-hmm. more sense to put something halfway in between San Antonio and Austin. Mm-hmm. And does that impact the fulfillment times? It, it depends. Yeah, well, long and short is yes, it does. I, I saw all of that between living in Bentonville versus living in Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh ordering things from Best Buy, I can have it the same day. Living in Bentonville, if I ordered it from Best Buy, I could have it in two days. <laughs> so, <laughs> got it. I think it has more to do with the transportation network that you're running, though, and less to do with your automation, to be honest. Got it. All right, Ellen, this has been an amazing conversation. As we get towards kind of the end here, I'd love for you to just let's let's revisit that idea that we we're talking about of what the future footprint of grocery stores will look like if they can start fresh with an auto store type of system. And that e-commerce penetration, let's say, is a lot higher, maybe getting closer to 20%. What do you think, like, how do you see the physical retail experience being shaped by omni-channel and this kind of new automation that we can bring to the table? What will the ideal kind of, you know, future scenario look like for a customer, you know, experience? Yeah, and I, I think we touched on it earlier a little bit, Matt. And I think the big thing you're going to see is how do you make, if a customer comes into your store, like that's something that should be cherished and you need to figure out how to surprise and delight that customer and make that a really positive experience. So especially inside grocery and you're looking at people, food is so critical to how people live. So how do you tie into their community and the culture for where they live and how do you begin to tie in the design of your stores whether that is fresh produce and fresh meats or bakery fresh breads maybe because it's in an urban environment it's more about having ready-to-eat meals um really quick ways to put together your own kind of meal kits that are being offered by the grocery store. And that's how you're designing your customer experience space while still enabling people to get what they want and get it very rapidly. And so then that way, you know, maybe if you're servicing car people that drive up, it's the, we'll get your order ready um, and you can go inside, pick out all of these customer experience items. And then we're going to load the Cheerios and the crackers and the bottled water in the Mm -hmm. back of the car. At the same time, for those of us living in more urban environments, maybe you're splitting between the, the delivery that's going to someone's door and catering to the customer that's popping into the store on their way home from work and the kind of items that they would need, the bottle of wine, the missing ingredient for dinner, et cetera. Right. So it's going to, it's going to lead to smaller skew counts in higher value, smaller skew counts in more prime real estate areas. And then taking kind of the lower margin Amazon type of things that they're kind of Amazon and other e-commerce, you know, like the the Walmarts of the world are attacking those retailers on, right. If you think about, you know, just their margin, uh, like your margin is Amazon's opportunity. They want to suck away all that for the, you know, the paper towels, the, you know, deter whatever you're going to like add to your order that is, you know, essentially maybe not food or it's non-perishable. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really focus on delivering that kind of curated produce, meat, perimeter, you know, prepared meals selection on the, and all, all within, make that the focal point of the store. And maybe even, uh, they, because they know what I ordered, you know, from, online before 
Um, I don't even need to go and like necessarily shop for the Cheerios and the mayonnaise and the ketchup. It's literally just added to my cart because I just hit a button when I walked in and said, reorder it. And it's either delivered to my house or it could be maybe in the back store room. Um, and then done with kind of at the end, as you alluded to, but I think it's got to get out of the class A real estate. That's, I think that's what it comes down to is the, the customers want what they want when they want it and where they want it. And how do you make that as simple as possible for the forgettable items The like you said, the mayonnaise, the ketchup, the crackers and focus on the surprise and delight and take your prime real estate and focus there and that's right. that I think that really is going to be the new future of Omnichannel is I don't want to think about ordering toilet paper, but I do want to think about <laughs> picking out the bottle of wine that's going to go with dinner tonight. Amazing. Well, this has been really fascinating to think about, um, you know, so much of our lives are getting automated. So very cool to, to explore that with you for something that is so, you know, such, such a recurring thing as, as shopping for online groceries has become the fabric of our lives. If people are interested in learning more about auto store, tell us how they can get started. Um, if we have engineers that are listening to this, that want to come work for auto store, tell us, um, where they can look about, look, look into opportunities, that sort of thing. Awesome. So stereotypical answer. First place to look mm-hmm. is our website, autostoresystem.com. We've got tons of videos, lots of information there. Um, you can actually find us on, I think, all of the socials. Um, so you can find us there as well. Um, if you're looking for jobs, I know they're definitely posted on our website, but they may also be a little easier to find on LinkedIn, depending on where you're kind of working out of. Uh, so that would be where I'd kick it off. And if you want to see lots of neat systems on how they run and operate, there's quite a few of them actually on YouTube because both our ourselves as well as our partners will post videos there as well. So you can check out like the Puma system I know is on YouTube. Okay, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Alan. And um, we'll be following along very closely. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.